Morning, church. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Psalm chapter 34. Psalm 34 is going to be where we are spending most of our time today. And as you turn there, what you'll see is underneath the heading that says Psalm 34, underneath the heading, there's going to be something in italics that we call a superscription. Now, all, all the Psalms, all 150, have this in them, a superscription, but only 14 of them have a historical detail telling us why this Psalm was written in David's life. And so last week we looked at Psalm 51, and J.K. Jones, he did a great job preaching. That Psalm, Psalm 51, had a superscription like this that told us that David wrote that after he went into Bathsheba. Now, I don't Some people say that these are inspired by God. Other people say they're not inspired like uh, the Bible. They are just, um, they're just reliable early witnesses. I don't really care where you land on that spectrum. But what I want us to know is that they help us get context for these psalms to help us understand these psalms and help us to then learn to pray these psalms and apply them to our everyday lives. And so Psalm 34, it has a superscription that says this. Of David, when he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. Actually, like how the NIV says it, it says this. It says, when he pretended to be insane. Do you remember this story in your Bibles? It's in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 10 through 15. I have to be honest with you. I had to read over this story multiple times to remember everything that was going on in David's life. But for us to understand what was going on, think back to David and King Saul. So David, he was this shepherd boy who turned out to be this warrior. Because remember, when David was the smallest of his brothers, he went up and he defeated the Goliath the giant Goliath. But he wasn't the first king. The first king was actually King Saul. And King Saul, he was tall. He was handsome. He was the people's choice to be king. They loved King Saul. But his heart was disobedient from God. His heart was turned away from God. And so God said, you're no longer going to be the king anymore. I'm going to raise up someone who has a heart after me. And that person was David. And so Saul was so jealous of David that he began to chase after him and try to kill him. Multiple times, Saul tried to kill David, but unsuccessfully. But one time, David could feel that Saul was right on his heels. He was about to kill David. And so David did the unthinkable. He went into enemy territory. He went into a city called Gath. Here's a picture of Gath. You can see it right up there. Uh, It's towards the middle. That's where we're talking about. And Gath was Philistine territory. And so what you need to know about Gath is not only was it Philistine territory, this is where Goliath was from. So there probably would have been posters up because Goliath was their poster board, a poster boy. They would have seen uh, pictures of Goliath up there. And David goes into enemy territory and he even has Goliath's sword, we're told in the narrative. But you're thinking to yourself, you're scratching your head thinking, David, this probably isn't the greatest idea that you've ever had before. And so he goes into Gath, and of course, one of the king's servants sees David and realizes who he is. There was a famous song, it was a hit song going on back then. It sounded something like this, Saul had killed his thousands, but David had killed his tens of thousands. 
And when this guy, this servant saw David, he realized, oh my goodness, this song is about this David. And so he runs to the king, King Achish, and he tells him, David is here in our territory. And he can't believe it, but he goes and he finds King David. And David knows at this point, when he sees King Achish, that he is up a creek without a paddle. He knows that he is going to die. He's terrified because either King Achish is going to kill him or he's going to make him be tortured the rest of his life. He's going to live in shame for the rest of his life. So he knows that he is going to die and so he starts to act crazy. He starts to act insane. He starts scratching the doorposts with his fingernails. He starts spitting when he's talking more than I spit when I preach. And he has drool running down his face. He's just acting insane. And when King Achish sees that David is crazy, he says, there is no way this is the king. This is no way, there's no way a king would act like this. And so instead of killing David, they kick him out of the city of Gath. That's what the superscription in Psalm 34 is all about. And so as a response to this deliverance, David, probably in a cave somewhere, he wrote this psalm, Psalm 34. And I think one of the main ideas that we learn from Psalm 34 is that fearing God opens our mouths to worship. Fearing God opens our mouths to worship. And as we read through Psalm 34, we'll see that it's a demonstration on different ways that we can use our mouths to worship God. And so we're going to be asking the question as we read through Psalm 34, how do we worship God with our mouths? We're continuing in our series called Bodies That Worship, and we're looking at different ways, different body parts that we can use to worship God, I want to draw your attention to the wall over here. We've had some of our uh, children do our stage decor. So we have our eyes up there with the googly eyes. We have the nice little heart. And that last thing, those are a bunch of smiley faces. You can't really tell. Some of them are sideways or upside down. Um, but I'm thankful for the kids and their, their help with the stage decor in this sermon series. But go ahead and look at Psalm 34. How do we worship God with our mouths? And the first way is that we open our mouths to praise. We open our mouths to praise. Look at verse 1 through 3. It says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. I love these verses because they are the definition of praise that we will constantly always be praising, magnifying, exalting the name of the Lord. We will be boasting in Him. And when I think about the story of David, I think about how David could have boasted in himself. Right? He could have boasted in himself because it was ultimately David who came up with the idea, you know what, I'm going to act insane. And so it could have been easy for David to think to himself, you know what, I'm so smart. Like, I am so clever. There's no situation that I get myself into that I can't get myself out of. But David knew that his boast must not be in himself, but that his boast must be in the Lord because any good thought that came to his mind was ultimately from the Lord. Any deliverance that came to him was ultimately from the Lord. So David, he didn't boast in himself and his own powers and his own thoughts and his own ideas. No, he boasted in the Lord. 
I'm reminded of the New Testament story of John the Baptist. John the Baptist, I like to just give him the nicknames JB. Sounds a little like Justin Bieber. But John, John the Baptist, JB, he was this prophet. And he had a purpose that he was going to preach before the Messiah would come. And JB, he was a popular prophet. People liked listening to him preach. And so people would flock to him. And JB, he was baptizing people left and right. He had a large crowd. And then one day, Jesus, as he's beginning his ministry, he goes out to John the Baptist to be baptized. And so there was people comparing John the Baptist with Jesus. And they asked John, what, what should we think about Jesus? And listen to his response in John chapter 3, verse 30. JB says to them, he must increase but I must decrease. Jesus must increase, but I must decrease. John the Baptist knew his role, and he knew that he wasn't to boast in himself and in his own ministry, but that he was to boast in the Lord. This is the heart of all praise and worship, that we give God the rightful place on the throne of our hearts and on the throne of our lips. We praise the Lord. But why? Why do we praise the Lord? Because He is the one who delivers us. Look back at uh, verses 4 through 7 with me. Here's what it says. David says, I sought the Lord, and He answered me, and He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to Him are radiant, and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him, and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and he delivers them. I love these verses and how personal they are to David. He says, I sought the Lord, and he delivered me. He delivered me from all my fears. And then in verse 6, he says, this poor man cried. He's talking about himself. This poor man cried, and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. This deliverance from the Lord is personal to David. And what was he delivered from? Look back at verse 4 with me, the very end of verse 4. David says, He delivered me from all my fears. He delivered me from all my fears. That word there for fear is not the normal word for fear. In fact, it's only used three times throughout all the Old Testament. But when that word is used... It's always talking about something that is terrifying, a horrifying experience when one is afraid that they are about to lose their life. David is afraid that he is going to lose his life. He's fearful. And like David, we've had plenty of things to fear lately, haven't we? 2020 was a year full of fear. Maybe for you it was a presidential candidate. Or maybe for you, it was something more personal, like your future. You didn't know what to do and what God was calling you to do. Or maybe you were struggling and wrestling, wrestling with the possibility of divorce, or the economy and losing a business, or that pandemic, possibly losing your own life or losing loved ones. 2020 was a year full of fears. But what David wants us to see here is that no fear can outmatch the fear of the Lord. 
In other words, fearing the Lord drives out all fears. A true, proper understanding of fearing the Lord drives out all fears. Look at verse 7 and verse 9 with me. It says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear Him, and He delivers Him. And then in verse 9 it says, Oh, fear the Lord, you His saints, for those who fear Him have no lack. They lack nothing. Fearing the Lord drives out all our fears. But how can that be true? How can that be true? Because if I'm honest, I still wrestle with fears. If I'm honest, every time I get up on this stage, I'm afraid. I'm afraid I'm going to botch a sermon and I'm going to make a fool of myself. I'm still afraid at times that I'm going to lose my best friend, Janelle. There are still moments in my life where I feel afraid. And I know there are moments in your life when you still feel afraid. How can we truly say that fearing the Lord drives out all other fears? Well, first, let's define what I mean by fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is used throughout all of the Bible. And it's especially used in the wisdom literature. So like books of Proverbs and books of Ecclesiastes, books like this, they show us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of all wisdom. But what does fear of the Lord actually look like? And I think Psalm 33, 8 is helpful for us. Psalm 33 is the psalm just before Psalm 34. And here's what it says. It says, let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. Fearing the Lord is an attitude of awe and wonder before the faithful covenant God of love. Fearing the Lord is all about awe and wonder. Have you ever met someone that you deeply, deeply respect? Someone like you highly, highly respect? About five years ago, I was at a a Christian conference, and one of the speakers, his name was John Ortberg. Some of you may have heard of him. He is a best-selling Christian author. He specializes in the soul, understanding who we are. And he has changed the way that I understand Jesus and follow Jesus. And so he's one of my heroes of the faith. And so at this conference, John Ortberg, he does this little breakout session. And then at the end, he invited everyone. Hey, if you have any questions, come forward and ask me. And so there was lots of people lined up and I got in that line And as I would take a step forward, I could feel my heart just beating a little faster and beating a little faster and beating a little faster. And I could feel my hands starting to get clammy and I could feel my throat starting to close up. And then I finally got in front of John Ortberg and I was just barely able to muster out the question. I can't even really remember what I asked him. But in that moment, I was full of awe and wonder because I respected him so much. I think that's just a little glimpse of what fearing the Lord is like. Multiply that experience times a million, and that's what fearing the Lord is like. We come to God knowing that He is the most powerful being in the universe, knowing that He holds the whole world in His hand, and yet at the same time, He wants a deep personal relationship with you and with me. We have this wonder and awe that the God of the universe wants anything to do with us. So much so that He became like us in every single way 
lived a perfect life and was willing to die for us so that we could have eternal life with him. We could have life abundantly with him forever. And so a proper understanding of fearing the Lord is this awe and wonder at who God is. And when we understand fearing God this way, it drives out all other fears. Dallas Willard, he's another Christian author. He writes in his book on Psalm 23, it's called Life Without Lack. It's a great book. But he says this, and he's talking about fears and how if we truly fear God, all other fears are driven away. Here's what he says. He says, imagine that the worst thing you feared had taken place. And then ask yourself, where would I be if this actually happened? What would happen to God? If we were to do this, we would realize that in reality, it would not make much difference since most of our fears are quite trivial. Even severe fears can be faced when we are confident in the strength and generosity of God and in the fact that His kingdom isn't shaken and He is not undone by those things. God is not surprised by our fears. God is not shaken by our fears. So let me just ask you honestly, what do you fear most? What do you fear most? Cling on to that for a second in your right hand. What do you fear most? And then in the other hand, remember Romans chapter 8, verse 39, which says, nothing can separate us from from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing, neither height nor depth, nor, neither angels nor demons, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fearing God drives out all fears. And once those fears are gone, we can replace those fears with praise. We worship God by praising Secondly, we, uh, how do we worship God? We worship God by opening our mouths to preach. By opening our mouths to preach. Look at verse 8 through 10 with me. David says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints. For those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. Here, David starts preaching. He starts telling people, hey, come and see, come taste and see that the Lord is good. He is inviting everyone he knows to come experience the goodness of God. Right now, I want you to envision in your mind the most delicious food that you've ever tasted in your life. So if you have to close your eyes Just think about the most delicious food that you have ever tasted in your life. I've talked multiple times up here about my wife's chocolate chip cookies, so I'm not going to do that today. But recently, I think this may be the greatest thing I've ever tasted. I went to Finley's, and I ordered a brisket horseshoe. Now, can I tell you what? That thing was the most amazing thing I've ever had in my life. The, the brisket was good, it was salty, but it was smoky, and then, of course, it was smothered in fries and cheese sauce. I mean, that brisket horseshoe, if there's not something like that in the new heavens and the new earth, I will be surprised because that thing was delicious. What's the most, favorite th- what's the most delicious thing you've ever tasted in your life? Is your mouth watering yet? 
Because David, he wants our mouths to be watering. And he wants us to see that, hey, nothing in this world can satisfy you the way that God can. Nothing is sweeter than tasting the goodness of God. Only Jesus is the bread of heaven that can feed our souls. David wants us to begin experiencing the goodness of God. In the New Testament, the disciple Peter, remember him, Peter, he always says stupid things. We'll talk about that later too. Uh, But Peter, he actually ends up writing a couple letters in the New Testament. And in one of his letters, he's writing to his congregation and he says to them, hey, remember, you have tasted the goodness of God. You have tasted it. If you are a Christian out there, you have tasted the goodness and sweetness of God. And since you are a Christian, what we want to do is help remind you to think about the goodness and sweetness of God. And so today for Father's Day, all of you men out there, as you exit today, we are going to give you some dad's root beer candies. We, we tried buying the soda, but it was out of stock everywhere. Imagine that. So we, we have some dad's root beer candies out there. And when you pop those suckers in your mouth and hopefully share uh, with your friends and family, when you pop those in your mouth, we want you to think about the goodness of God. We want you to ask the question, how has God been good to me? How has God blessed me? How has God delivered me? How has God saved me? Because it is only once we have experienced the goodness of God that we can start preaching like David. Only once we have tasted and seen that the Lord is good that then can we start preaching like David does. And David, later in his psalm, he just starts going off, going preachy on us. Look at verse 15 through 22 with me. There's a lot of verses. I'm going to try and read them fairly quickly. But David says, The eyes of the Lord are toward the righteous, and his ears toward their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil, to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked, and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. David, he starts preaching about the goodness of God, and he shows us how we can preach about God. That God is a righteous God, and that he will deliver his saints from the wickedness. That our God is a compassionate God. He is close to the brokenhearted, and he hears us when we cry out to him. That our God redeems the life of his saints. No matter what happens in this world, the Lord can redeem it. We have a just God. We have a righteous God. We have a compassionate God. And all of these things, they ultimately point us to Jesus, our Savior. He is the compassionate one. He is the righteous one. He is the good one. And as Christians, we have tasted that, that Jesus is good, that he is righteous and compassionate And he has offered us redemption. And so we, like David here, we begin to preach. Now I know when I say that word preach, some of you are terrified because you say in a million years, there's absolutely no way you would get on this stage. If you got on this stage, you'd have to get a new pair of pants because you'd you'd pee your pants as soon as you got up here. I just want you to know, you're you're in good company. You know, I I get scared when I come up here too. It's, preaching is, uh, it's just, 
It's terrifying because you're preaching God's word to God's people. But I think the best kind of preaching actually doesn't happen up here on a pulpit. I think the best kind of preaching happens around a table, around a living room, where you can share about how God has been good to you with other people that you're in community with. And so I want to challenge you this week. Who is someone you can preach to about God's goodness? I don't care who it is. I don't care how you do it. But who is someone you can share with how God has been good to you? Because we have tasted the goodness of God. And to be a people that make more and better followers of Jesus Christ, we must be a people who are willing to preach. Not only because it could change someone's eternal destiny, but also because it's an act of worship to our holy God. We open our mouths to preach. And then lastly, how do we worship God with our mouths? We open our mouths to speak peace. We open our mouths to speak peace. Look at verses 11 through 14 real quick. It says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. There it is again, the fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. So David here, he transitions and he says, do you want to live a blessed life? Do you want to live a life where you are demonstrating the fear of the Lord? If so, don't speak evil. Don't speak deceit. Don't lie. Instead, speak peace. Growing up, we had many of these uh, childhood sayings. Most of you have probably heard some of these. We would say things like, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words can never hurt me. One of my favorites growing up was, uh, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. That's one of my favorite ones when I was growing up. But I have to tell you, those childhood sayings are just stupid. They're just so dumb. Because every single one of us in here recognizes that words are powerful. Words are extremely powerful. They can either hurt or heal. They can comfort or they can injure. In fact, Proverbs chapter 18.21 tells us that the tongue has the power of life and death. Our words matter. And I just want to talk to you fathers very specifically. Maybe more than anybody else, your words to your children matter. Your words can either help or hinder their relationship with Jesus. Being a father is a high calling. And so there are going to be moments when we say things that we shouldn't. But just know that the Holy Spirit wants to help you. So ask for help because your words matter. And the disciple Peter, we talked about him earlier, he knows that his words matter. I mean, if It'd be a fun study. You should do this sometime. Just, just go through the Gospels looking at Peter and see how many times he said something stupid because it would be off the charts. He was always saying something he shouldn't say. He should just shove his shoe in his mouth. I identify with Peter very, very often. And, Dave, and Peter, when he is writing his letter in 1 Peter chapter 3, he actually quotes these verses from Psalm 34, verses 11 through 14. He puts them in there to talk to his followers about how they are to use their mouth. And just before he quotes them, listen to this verse that Peter says. First Peter 3, 9, he says, 
Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter, the disciple, is telling his congregation when those people persecute you, when they hurt you, when they revile you, bless them. Don't persecute them. Don't use your words to tear them down. Instead, use your words to build them up. Jesus said the same thing. Blessed are you when people persecute you. But that's crazy, right? Like, I'm not the only one who is stuck, struck by the craziness of this statement. We are called to bless those who persecute us. I want you to think back to your past. And I want you to think back to some of the painful words that were spoken to you that have actually formed and shaped who you are today. And I want to encourage you, if, those, if you've never really dealt with those in a healthy way, to go find a Christian counselor. There's no shame in talking to a counselor about how these childhood moments have impacted who you are today. In fact, I encourage you to do that. But maybe for some of you, these words have stuck with you for your entire life. Words like you're stupid, you're fat, you're ugly, you're not worthy, you'll never amount to anything. And what, what Peter is calling us to do here is to think about those people and to bless them. To think about those people and to pray for them. And I don't think there's a, an easy, quick fix that we can just flip a switch and say, you know what, I'm just going to bless these people. I'm just going to use my words now, and I'm never going to tear down my grandson. I'm never going to tear down my kids. I'm never going to tear down those who hurt me. I'm never going to tear down the people who cut me off in traffic. I don't think there's a quick fix for that. But I think there is something that will help us. And I think it's when we think about what Jesus said when we were his enemies. Remember, the Bible tells us that we were God's enemies. We had disobeyed God. We had turned our backs on God. And ultimately, you and I, we put Jesus up on that cross. And as Jesus is hanging on that cross, you know what he doesn't say? He doesn't say, I hate you. He doesn't say you're worthless. He doesn't curse you. But listen to what Jesus says in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. He says, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. Jesus spoke forgiveness and a blessing and peace over you and me. And as a response to that, we must speak peace to other people because Jesus spoke peace over us. Fearing God opens our mouths to worship. And we worship by praising, by preaching, and by speaking peace. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you are such a good, good God. And we thank you that you have helped us to taste and see that you are good. I want to pray for anyone, Lord, who's never really taken that step with you to be serious in their relationship with you. I pray, Lord, that your spirit would be stirring in their hearts. And I pray, Lord Jesus, that as we go throughout our day, our week, and our lives, you would help us to praise you and preach about you and speak peace and blessing over other people. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.
Good morning, church. Go ahead and open your Bibles up to Psalm chapter 34. Psalm chapter 34 is where we're going to be spending most of our time today. And as you get there, what you'll see underneath the heading is probably some words in italics. Those are known as the superscriptions. And all of the Psalms, they have superscriptions, but only 14 have these superscriptions that tell us about why this Psalm was written and it's connected to David's Life. It's connected to a certain point in David's life. So like last week, we preached on Psalm 51. JK did a great job preaching. And that psalm had a superscription kind of like this one. And it told us that this psalm was written after David went into Bathsheba. And so this psalm, Psalm 34, it has a superscription about David's life. And here's what it says. Psalm 34, of David... When he changed his behavior before Abimelech, so that he drove him out and he went away. That's kind of a soft way of saying what's actually going on here. I like how the New International Version, the NIV, says it. It says, when he pretended to be insane. Do you remember that story in your Bible? Where David pretended to be insane. You find it in 1 Samuel 21, verses 10 through 15. I have to be honest with you. I kind of knew the story, but I had to read over it a couple different times to remember what was going on. Remember, David, to understand what's going on here, David was not the first king of Israel. Remember that. David was this little shepherd boy, and he was famous because he defeated the giant. Goliath. I'm sure you probably remember that story. David defeated Goliath. And he was a man after God's own heart. But the first king of Israel, God's people, was King Saul. And King Saul, he was tall. He was handsome. He was the people's choice to be their king. The problem with Saul, though, is that he disobeyed God. He had a heart for himself and not for God. And so God told him, I'm going to rip the kingdom out of your hands, and I'm going to give it to someone who has a heart after me. I'm going to give it to David. And so Saul was jealous of David, so much so that Saul began to chase after David and try to kill him multiple times. Saul tried to kill King David. In one of those instances, Saul is right on David's tail, and David has to make a decision. What am I going to do here? Am I going to try and fight Saul, or am I going to go into enemy territory? And he chooses to go into Gath, enemy territory. Here's a picture of where Gath is. You can kind of see it towards the bottom, the middle. It's right there in Gath. And what you need to know about Gath is that this is where Goliath is from. This is Goliath's hometown, so they probably have some posters up of Goliath. Goliath was their famous boy. And yet David had defeated him. And David, he actually, we're told in 1 Samuel, he has Goliath's sword. And so David is in enemy territory with their most famous enemy's sword. Probably not the best idea that he's ever had. And one of the servants of the king, King Achish, he sees David and he recognizes him. There was a famous song going around, a hit song, that said Saul, King Saul, had killed his thousands, but David had killed his tens of thousands. And when the servant saw David, he remembered the song, 
And he connected the two. And so he ran to the king, King Achish, and said, Hey, David is in our territory. You're not going to believe this, but he is here. And so the king, he went to go check out and see if King David was, in fact, right there. And sure enough, he was. And so David had a choice to make. What am I going to do? I'm going to die. I'm probably going to either die or I'm going to be stuck here as a servant and be tortured for the rest of my life. What do I do? And David decided to act crazy. He decided to act insane, and he started to scratch the door frames with his fingernails. He began to spit as he talked, more than I spit when I'm preaching up here. He had drool running down his face. He was going crazy. And when the king saw this, he said, there is no way that this is King David. A king would never act like this. And rather than killing King David right there, he just kicked him out of the city. And David was delivered from all of his fears. And as a response to that deliverance, David writes this psalm, Psalm 34, probably in a cave somewhere, to worship God and thank him for delivering him. And I think one of the things that we find most through this psalm and the main idea for the sermon today is that fearing God opens our mouths to worship. Fearing God opens our mouths to to worship. And so we're going to be asking the question as we look at this psalm, how do we worship God with our mouths? We're in a sermon series called Bodies That Worship, and we've been talking about different psalms and how they help us to worship God with our different body parts. Take a look at the stage decor over here to the right. We had some of our kids put that together. They're doing a great job. So we we started by talking about our eyes, love the googly eyes, and then uh, we talked about the heart last week, and then this week, our mouths. I'm not sure you can really tell from where you're sitting, but there's a whole bunch of smiley faces. Most of them are upside down, but they're smiley faces nonetheless to remind us that we are to worship God with our mouths. But how? How do we do that? And I think that's what Psalm 34 teaches us. So the first thing we see is that we can open our mouths to praise. We open our mouths to praise. Look at the first three verses with me. Psalm 34 says, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. My soul makes its boast in the Lord. Let the humble hear and be glad. Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. These verses are like the definition of praise. Praise is when we are constantly talking about God at all times, when we are constantly magnifying his name and boasting in who he is. When I think about this psalm, It's somewhat surprising to me that David says, my soul boasts in the Lord. Because David here, he could have boasted in himself. I mean, remember, it was his idea to act insane, and because he acted insane, he was delivered. And so David could have just said, you know what? I'm pretty awesome. I'm pretty clever. I came up with the idea to act insane, and I was delivered. You know, there's no situation that I get myself into that I cannot get myself out of. I am awesome. But instead of doing that, David recognizes that any good idea that he has comes from the Lord. And any deliverance that he has ultimately comes from the Lord. And so David, he doesn't boast in himself. He boasts in the Lord. 
And it reminds me of a guy in the New Testament, about a thousand years later than this, John the Baptist. John the Baptist, he was the cousin of Jesus. I like to just call him JB. JB, he had this prophetic ministry where he was out preaching in the wilderness. And as JB would preach, lots of people would listen. And they would come and they would follow JB and they would want to be baptized by John the Baptist. And so John the Baptist, he has this great ministry. And one day, Jesus comes out into the wilderness to be baptized by John. And so John's disciples are like, hey man, are, are you greater than this Jesus guy? They, they start comparing the two. And listen to what J.B. says. Here's what he says in John chapter 3, verse 30. He says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. John understood that his boast was not to be in himself, but his boast was to be in Jesus the Lord. I think this is the heart of all praise. It's putting God on his rightful place on the throne of our hearts and putting God on the throne of our lips. We worship God by praising. But why? Why do we praise the Lord? Well, for David here in verses 4 through 7, he says, we praise the Lord because he is the one who delivers us. God is always the one who delivers us. Look at verses 4 through 7 with me. David says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. And he delivered me from all of my fears. Those who look to him are radiant and their faces shall never be ashamed. This poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. I love how personal this is to David. Look back at verse 4. He says, I sought the Lord and he answered me. He delivered me from all of my fears. And then in verse 6 he says, this poor man cried. He's talking about himself. This poor man. I am that poor man. And the Lord heard him and saved him out of all of his troubles. This deliverance is personal to David. And did you see what he was delivered from? The very end of verse 4 he says, He delivered me from all my fears. That word there for fears is not the general word for fear. No, that word is only used three times in all the Bible. It is always describing a horrifying, terrifying experience where you think that your life is about to be taken from you. David is afraid that he is going to lose his life. David is fearful. And we've had plenty of things to be afraid of this year too. 2020 has been a year full of fears. Maybe for you it was a presidential candidate and the fear that a certain person would be in office. Or maybe for you it was something more personal, fear about the future. You didn't know what to do, what your job was going to hold, what college to go to. Or maybe you were afraid of the riots because you knew people who were involved in the riots, or maybe as you were spending more time with your spouse, you started to fear divorce or economic pressures. You're not sure if your business was going to be able to stand the pressure. You just didn't know if your own household could stand the pressure. Maybe fear of the pandemic, fear that you would lose your life, or maybe you would lose 
the life of a loved one. This year was full of fears. But what David wants us to see in this psalm is that no fear outmatches the fear of the Lord. In other words, fearing the Lord drives out all other fears. When we have a proper understanding of fearing the Lord, it actually drives out all other fears. Look at verse 7 and verse 9 with me. It says, The angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him, and the Lord delivers them. And then in verse 9, Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. Fearing the Lord drives out all fears. But how can that be true? Because if I'm honest, I still have moments when I'm afraid. Honestly, when I get on this stage every Sunday, there's a little bit of fear in me that I'm just going to botch this sermon and make a fool of myself. There's still moments in my life where I'm afraid that I'm going to lose my best friend, my wife, Janelle. There are moments in life when I'm still afraid, and I'm sure there are moments in your life when you are afraid as well. So how can it be true that fearing the Lord drives out fear? Well, first, let me define what I mean by fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is used all throughout the Bible, but it's especially used in the wisdom literature. So we're talking books of the Bible like Proverbs and Ecclesiastes. In Proverbs 1, it tells us that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, the beginning of wisdom. But what does that actually look like? In Psalm 33, verse 8, the psalm just before the one we're looking at today, I think it gives us a helpful description of what it means to fear the Lord. Here's what it says, Psalm 33, verse 8. It says, Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of Him. Fearing the Lord is an attitude of awe and wonder before a faithful covenant God of love. Let me illustrate it this way. How many of you have ever been in the presence of someone you highly, highly admire or respect? About five years ago, I went to this Christian conference. There are thousands and thousands of people there. But one of my favorite authors, his name is John Ortberg. He writes a lot of books. He's a best-selling author. He specializes in our souls and understanding who we are and our relationship with God. He has transformed the way that I understand my relationship with with Jesus. And so I was excited to listen to him. And so he did a main session and then he did like a breakout session. And at the end of that breakout session, he said, hey, if you have any questions, just come talk to me. Just line up and I'll answer your questions. So I was like, oh my goodness, should I do this? Like, this is crazy. So I got in line and every time I would take a step closer, my heart would beat a little bit faster and my hands They'd start to get clammier, and my throat, it would start to close up. And by the time I made my way all the way up to the front of the line, I was barely able to get the words out. I'm not even sure the question I asked him, but I was barely to get the, able to get the words out because I respected this man so much. And I think that's just a glimpse of what it looks like to fear the Lord. Take that experience and multiply it times a million because fearing the Lord is a fearful recognition that the God of the universe, the God who holds the whole world in His hands, wants a deep personal relationship with you and with me. So much so that He was willing to become like us in every single way and die on the cross for us 
so that we could experience life with Him. Fearing the Lord is an attitude of awe and wonder towards our Heavenly Father. And when we have this, it drives out all of our fears. Dallas Willard, he's another author, and he says this in his uh, book called Life Without Lack. It's a book on the Christian life in Psalm 23. Many of you probably know Psalm 23. But here's what he says when, when talking about fear and how the fear of God actually drives out all other fears. Here's what he says. Imagine, imagine that the worst thing you feared had taken place. And then ask yourself, where would I be if this actually happened? What would happen to God? If we were to do this, we would realize that in reality, it would not make much difference since most of our fears are quite trivial. Even severe fears can be faced when we are confident in the strength and generosity of God and in the fact that His kingdom isn't shaken and He is not undone by these things. God is not surprised by our fears. And so let me just ask you real quick, what do you fear most? Honestly, what do you fear most? I want you to cling to that in one hand. What do you fear most? But then I want you to hear the words of Romans chapter 8, verse 39, which says, Nothing, nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Neither height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Fearing God drives out all other fears. And so no longer do our fears need to be on our lips. Instead, no matter what the circumstances, we can praise, just like David did. We open our mouths to praise. That's number one. Number two is we open our mouths to preach. We open our mouths to preach. Go ahead and look at verses 8 through 10 with me. It says, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in him. O fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. David here, he starts preaching. He's so excited to share with others, to invite others to taste and see that the Lord is good. David starts preaching. I want you to take a moment here and think about the most delicious food you've ever tasted in your life. Maybe some of you need to close your eyes here to visualize it. Don't fall asleep on me. But think about the best tasting food you've ever had in your life. I've talked multiple times up here about my wife Janelle's chocolate chip cookies, so I won't do that today. But recently, I went to Finley's in Springfield, and I ordered a brisket horseshoe. That thing is probably the greatest thing I've ever tasted in my life. The brisket is smoky, it's salty, and then, of course, it's covered in fries and cheese sauce that is delicious. I think, I'm, I'm convinced, that in the new heavens and the new earth, that a horseshoe brisket Brisket horseshoe from Finley's is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth or something like it is going to be in the new heavens and the new earth. It's so delicious. So what are you thinking about? Is your mouth watering yet? 
Because what David wants us to do here, he wants us to see, he wants us to have our mouths watering and see that only the Lord can satisfy our deepest needs. Only the Lord is the one who is truly good to us. Only the Lord, Jesus Christ, is the bread from heaven that feeds our souls. And so David is preaching. In the New Testament, there's the disciple, his name is Peter. You might remember Peter. We'll talk uh, later about him because he says a lot of stupid things. Uh, but Peter, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 3, he's writing a letter to some Christians. And he reminds them, as Christians, that they have tasted and experienced that the Lord is good. And to help remind us of how God has been good to us after this service... All of the men out there, we have for you some dad's root beer candies. And so we have, I, we try to get some of the soda, dad's root beer soda. It's out of, out of stock. Of course it is. Everywhere it's out of stock. But anyway, so we got these candies for you instead. And as you pop those suckers in your mouth and sh- hopefully share with some of your friends and family, I want you to think about how God has been good to you. How has God been good to you? How has God blessed you? How has God delivered you? How has God saved you? Because it is only after we taste and see that the Lord is good that we can go on preaching to other people. We have to taste and see that the Lord is good before we start preaching like David does. And David is so caught up in how good God is. Later on in the psalm, he just starts going off. He starts preaching even more. You can see it in verses 15 through 22. I'm going to read it kind of quickly. But here's what it says in verses 15 through 22. The eyes of the Lord are towards the righteous and his ears towards their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the memory of them from the earth. When the righteous cry for help, the Lord hears and delivers them from all their troubles. I love verse 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. Affliction will slay the wicked and those who hate the righteous will be condemned. The Lord redeems the life of his servants. None of those who take refuge in him will be condemned. So David, he keeps preaching. And he actually teaches us how we can preach, what we can tell other people about. How our God is a righteous God and that he will judge evil and wickedness in our world. How our God is a compassionate God. He hears us when we cry to him and he is near to the brokenhearted. And we have a God who redeems every broken situation. Our God redeems for good. And all of these things, that our God is righteous, he hears us, he's compassionate, he redeems, point us to Jesus, the one who was willing to become like us in every way, to show us what it looks like to be compassionate, to show us what it looks like to be righteous, the one who hears us when we cry out. These verses are all about Jesus. And if you are a Christian, you have tasted that. You have experienced that, that goodness of God. And so like David, since we have tasted the goodness, then we must start preaching. Now I know when I say the word preach, some of you just are thinking to yourself, Michael, if you want me to get up that, on that stage, that ain't never going to happen, and I'm going to need a new pair of pants because I'm going to pee my pants as soon as I get up there. If, that, if that's you, just know 
there are many people who get nervous when they preach, and I still get very nervous when I preach. But I'm not talking about coming up here to preach from a pulpit. I think some of the best preaching actually happens around a dinner table, around a living room, where we share life with other people, and we share with them how God has been good to us. So I I just want to challenge you this week to share with someone how God has been good to you. It doesn't matter who they are. I don't care if they're in your family. I don't care how you do it. But to just begin practicing preaching and sharing about God's goodness. Because if we are to be a people who make more and better disciples of Jesus, then we must be a people who are constantly preaching, telling people the good news of Jesus. Because not only could it change someone's eternal destiny, it's also an act of worship to our almighty God of the universe. We open our mouths to preach. And then lastly, we open our mouths to speak peace. We open our mouths to speak peace. Look at verse 11 through 14 with me. It says, Come, O children, listen to me. I will teach you the fear of the Lord. There it is again. Fear of the Lord. What man is there who desires life and loves many days that he may see good? Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from speaking deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. And so David here, he begins, he invites us into the blessed life, in how to live a life of wisdom and to use our mouths and not to speak lies, not to speak deceit, not to take other people down, but to build other people up. We are to speak peace. I don't know if you remember these childhood sayings. These were, these were famous when uh, I was growing up. But you ever heard the saying, sticks and stones may break our bones, but words will never hurt me. My favorite go-to when my brother would say something to me, I would say, I'm rubber and you're glue. Whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. That's one of my favorites. But we know that these childhood sayings are stupid. We know they're stupid. Because every single one of us in here recognizes that words matter. And words are powerful. Words can either heal or hurt. They can either comfort or injure. In fact, in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 21, it says, The tongue has the power of life and death. Our words matter. And I just want to speak to you fathers for just a moment. Maybe more than anybody else. Your words that you speak to your children matter because they can either help or hinder your child's relationship with Jesus. Being a father is a high calling, and it's hard. And there are going to be moments when you say things that you shouldn't say. But if you ask the Holy Spirit for his help to say good things, to speak peace, he will help you. Our words, they matter. And the disciple Peter, he knew that words mattered. The disciple Peter, I I think, I want to encourage you to just trace through one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, and just trace through Peter and when he says something. Sometimes he says things that you're just like, oh my goodness, that's amazing. And other times you just think, what were you thinking, Peter? Just shove a shoe in your mouth. Just shut your mouth. You're saying something so dumb. And so Peter, he knew the power of words. And later he wrote a letter in the New Testament, 
And in 1 Peter chapter 3, he actually quotes these verses from Psalm 34, telling his followers, the followers of Jesus, his church, how to speak wisely. And just before he quotes these verses, here's what he says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He says, Do not repay evil for evil, or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So Peter is calling his followers, his church, the people who are being persecuted for their faith. He's saying, hey, don't use your words to tear people down. Instead, use your words to bless them. When they come at you with evil, bless them. Jesus actually says the same thing. And he says, blessed are you when people persecute you. Pray for those who are your enemies. And maybe I'm the only one, but I just think, man, that is a crazy teaching. That is crazy difficult. I want you to think about your childhood and some of the words that have shaped who you are today. And I just want to say, many of us have words that were spoken to us when we were younger that has formed and shaped who we are today, and you, you need to talk to somebody about that. So I want to encourage you, if there's some things that are down deep, You need to go talk to a Christian counselor. There's no shame in that. You should do that. Because we all had words spoken to us that were hurtful. Words like, you're fat. You're ugly. You're stupid. You're worthless. You'll never amount to anything. I hate you. These words formed us and who we are today. And you probably have someone in your mind who you're picturing And what Peter is telling us is to use our words to bless those people. To use our words and speak peace over them. There's not a quick fix to this. I wish there was. I wish there was just a switch that I could flip and I could just pray blessing over people. It's not that easy. But I do think there is something that we can do to help us. I think the one main thing that we can do to help us speak peace over anybody, even our enemies, is to remember Jesus' last words and what he spoke over us. Because the Bible tells us that we were enemies of God. We had turned our back on him. We had decided to live life our own way. And yet Jesus, he decided to die for you and for me. And while he's hanging there on the cross, he doesn't rebuke us, he doesn't curse us, he doesn't call us any names. Instead, he prays for us and he blesses us. Listen to what he said in Luke chapter 23, verse 34. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Father, forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. Jesus spoke forgiveness and a blessing over you and over me, even though we were his enemies. And God calls us to do the same with our enemies. We speak peace because Jesus spoke peace over us. Fearing God opens our mouths to worship. So we worship by praising. We worship by preaching, and we worship by speaking peace even over our enemies.
Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you and we thank you for your son Jesus who blessed us and gave us forgiveness while he was on the cross. I pray, Lord, that through your Holy Spirit you would help us to bless other people. And I pray for those, Lord, who aren't sure where they're at in their relationship with you. I pray, Lord, you would help them to have a healthy fear of you, to be in awe and wonder of who you are. We praise you for being a good, good father. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.